Just allow me to get situated here. A dark stage, a spotlight on one single character, and not much surrounding, not much talking. This character is made known and made the most clear by what he does. As we began our study in the Gospel of Mark last week, that's how we described Mark's portrayal of Jesus. See, unlike the books of Matthew and Luke, which begin at the point leading up to Jesus' birth, the Gospel of Mark begins at the point leading up to Jesus' public ministry. We discovered that whether in John the Baptist's ministry as forerunner to the Messiah, or in the Father's pronouncement and the Spirit's descent on Jesus at his baptism, or in Jesus enduring Satan's attacks, last week we saw that all those things testify to Jesus' identity as the Son of God, the Messiah who will usher in God's rule. All those things show that Jesus is qualified and equipped for his mission. Today, we read of how that mission begins in the region of Galilee. So turn in your Bibles or turn in your bulletin to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Did anyone here make a New Year's resolution? Now, I tried this past week to look up the history of the New Year's resolution, and it appears that traces of that tradition go back even to ancient times, at least according to the very well-cited Wikipedia article. Uh, ancient Babylonians uh, made promises to their gods that they would return borrowed objects and pay their debts, and they did this at the beginning of each year. Uh, the Romans would begin each year by making vows to the god Janus, for whom the month of January is named. Also, after each Christmas, later on in history, medieval knights would take the peacock vow, recommitting themselves to the chivalric code. So the idea of reflecting on self-improvement every year goes back a long time, and it goes back across different cultures. In America, New Year's resolutions really became popular around the time of the Great Depression, when around a quarter of adults made a New Year's resolution. At the turn of this century, about 40% of American adults made a New Year's resolution. And now we all know the common ones, right? Uh, there's a resolution to get in shape, 
to eat healthier, to pray more, to do better at school, to get a better job, to get more organized, start a new hobby, maybe read more, or spend less time watching TV and, or on the computer. Those are the broad categories. And if you're at all attuned into like news or popular opinions, then you see New Year's resolutions often get a bad rep, right? Because the success rate to New Year's resolutions aren't very high. In fact, uh, one study suggests that 88% of people who make New Year's resolutions fail to keep their New Year's resolutions. And it's for a variety of reasons. Maybe their goals are too vague or they're too difficult. Or like if you're at the gym, they just sputter out of motivation after a few weeks. Now this morning, I'm not here to tell you whether or not you should make a New Year's resolution. What I'm interested in is what's at the heart of the desire to even make a New Year's resolution. Why do people do this every year? Well, the end of the year gives people, gives us an opportunity to reflect on how we've been living. And when we do that, we see that we've been doing a lot of stuff wrong. So then a New Year's resolution, the act, the act is of seeing what we've did, done wrong, recognizing it, turning from it, and turning to something opposite. And I actually think that's a good instinct. And it's commendable in a lot of ways. But ultimately, it, it falls short. What we see in this passage this morning is a summary of Jesus' preaching in the region of Galilee. And we see how Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God and he calls for a certain response to this. He calls for a response of repentance, of turning from something. So this, the first half of this equation of, of repentance is where the instinct of the New Year's resolution is on track. But where do they go from there? Jesus brings in the kingdom of God. Jesus brings the gospel. He doesn't say repent and do everything you can to improve yourself. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. If the success rate of New Year's resolutions clue us into anything, it's that we aren't dependable. It's that we need change. And that change must come from outside of ourselves. So as we approach this passage, we'll unpack Jesus' message and what it means to respond to him rightly. First, though, like last week, Mark sets the scene for what he's about to describe. So look at verse 14. Look at verse 14, and the very first thing that happens. John the Baptist is arrested. So the scenes obviously change. The, the camera pans from, a new, from Jesus to a new character. Jesus, we left him off in verse 13. He's in the wilderness. But now we see in verse 14, John is being arrested. And there's some sort of time gap here. And if we read the Gospel of John, we get a clue that there was a brief moment of time when Jesus and John were ministering together in the region of Judea near Jerusalem. 
So it clues us in. There's a gap between verses 13 and 14. And it clues us in, too, that each of the gospel accounts, including Mark, is not a strict chronological biography of Jesus. That the events in this gospel are often grouped based on where they happened or what they mean, their significance. Well, back to verse 14. John's arrested. And Mark's going to give us more details about this later. But John's arrest shows us several things. It shows us that people may silence ministers of the gospel, but they will not silence the gospel itself. John's arrested, but who comes after John? Jesus takes his place, the one who is mightier than him. John is arrested, and sort of the ironic and maybe strange thing about it is John is announcing that the kingdom of God is here. And that's what Jesus will announce as well. But how, are the, how does the kingdom of God begin? It begins with someone getting arrested? With someone heralding it, getting arrested? It's like if you ever walked into someone's house and, and you say, man, this house is way bigger on the inside than it looks on the outside. And it's like, is, is that really a compliment? <laughs> You're basically saying, like, wow, I, from the outside, your house looks really unimpressive. So I'm surprised that it's this nice. And this is a, this is a pattern that we're going to see in Mark. And in fact, the rest of the New Testament and the whole Bible, that what appears to be weak and foolish and unimpressive is used by God in a surprising way in order so that people may see his glory and power. So here, as John is arrested, we see that the gospel is made known in adversity, is made known in suffering. Even as John went before Jesus, preaching the same message as Jesus, John goes before Jesus and experiences the same fate as Jesus will experience. Again, back to verse 14. Mark is setting the scene for what's about to happen. John is arrested, and then Jesus goes to Galilee. Jesus goes to Galilee. You remember the song, New York, New York, uh, Sinatra? He, Sinatra says, if, if he can make it there, he can make it anywhere. Jesus flips this notion on its head. Jesus doesn't go to Rome or a thriving metropolis and start his ministry there. No, Jesus goes to Galilee this small region of fishing villages, of a medium-sized lake, that's where he begins his ministry. And in fact, that's where he stays for a lot of his ministry, where he does a lot of his preaching, where he heals a lot of people, where he does miracles. Again, we see the theme of God using the unimpressive to show his glory. John is arrested, and Jesus goes to Galilee. Even in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 9, that the hope of the Messiah will begin in the region of Galilee. Back to verse 14. What does Jesus do when he first gets to Galilee? What does he do? He comes proclaiming or preaching the gospel of God. Preaching is the first thing that marks Jesus' ministry. And we're talking about setting patterns. And Jesus sets the pattern 
for what the mission of his followers will be, for what the mission of his church will be. Because the mission of the church is not first about doing something like the Eightfold Path or the Five Noble Truths. The mission of the church is first about announcing what God has done in Christ. And we're going to see that again in Mark and the other gospel accounts as Jesus is driven by preaching. He goes from town to town, not so, not so that he can heal and perform miracles there, though he is concerned about that. He goes from town to town so that he may preach there. So that's a lesson for us when we consider our mission as the church. Our primary mission has to be to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. That's what Jesus tells us to do. And by proclaiming the gospel, we seek to draw closer to Christ and draw others as well to him. Because we are concerned about an eternity outside of Christ. We are concerned about eternal suffering. So that informs what our mission is. But secondarily, as we follow Christ and we see his ministry, we also concern ourselves with physical suffering in the here and now. We are concerned with alleviating that suffering. So we are compassionate like him. So here it is. That's the lay of the land as we enter in the meat of the text, the context that John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus goes into Galilee, and Jesus comes into Galilee preaching. So notice the, the first movement in our passage. Jesus preaches to the crowds. Jesus preaches to the crowds. At the onset of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, Mark gives sort of the summary statement of the message that Jesus proclaims. You see that in verse 15. And certainly he said more than just this one or one and a half sentences. But we, we could see a lot of his content from this verse. Jesus comes preaching, it says, the gospel of God. He comes preaching the gospel of God. Gospel harkens back to verse 1. There the gospel is Jesus himself. That the good news is that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in himself, has come among men. Gospel also served to summarize Jesus' teaching. But it's not just that Jesus proclaimed the good news. It's more than that. It's that Jesus in himself, is good news. Jesus is good news because his arrival meant the arrival of the kingdom of God. Notice verse 15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. He says, the time is fulfilled. And calling it the time, he's referring to a critical moment that his hearers would have long expected. And later, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 4. He says that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. So what, did the, what does this time mean? It means that the kingdom of God is at hand. And the concept of the kingdom of God goes all the way back to the nation of Israel and of God being Israel's king. And later in the Old Testament, the prophets describe a time when the Messiah would bring and usher in the eternal and heavenly reign of God himself. 
So here, Jesus says, the time is at hand, the, be- the kingdom is beginning. Literally, he says, the kingdom has come near. And that word near doesn't just designate time. It designates physical proximity. So when Jesus says, the kingdom has come near, he says, since I have come near to you, the kingdom is here. He links the kingdom to himself. He is the one who brings in God's expanding rule and realm, a rule that is just now beginning and will have further glory when it arrives fully when Jesus returns. So a lot of people want to change the world. Right? If you ask uh, college students, that's one of their goals, at least a lot of them, that they want to do something that will change the world. That or maybe more pessimistically, There are a lot of people who are just waiting on the world to change. But here we have something different. Here we have hope that the change has already begun. That Jesus has already arrived and the the kingdom has already begun. And he comes inviting us into this kingdom through him. And that's good news but it requires a decision. So now observe how Jesus calls the people to respond to his preaching. You see, the nature of this message and the urgency of this message calls for a response. However, this went against what the people would have expected. When Jesus came preaching about the kingdom of God, they thought the kingdom of God was this geopolitical reign. They thought the Messiah would come and bring the kingdom of God so that they would be freed from Roman rule. So the proper response then to the kingdom of God would be to prepare for war. But Jesus says that the response to the arrival of the kingdom of God that he has come is to what? It's to repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus makes clear that his first mission as the Messiah is to usher in the kingdom's spiritual realm. That is, before he defeats the physical foes, he has to defeat the foes of sin and death. And if people want to enter in that full and final kingdom, they must enter in right now. They must have those foes defeated right now. So they must believe in Jesus. They must turn from their sins and believe in the one who's foretold even in a place like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who would come and bear the transgressions of his people. So his response that he calls them to is to repent and believe. And it's commonly referred to as two sides of the same coin. Repenting is turning from something and believing is turning to something. Matthew Henry, a famous commentator, he puts it like this. By repentance, we must lament and forsake our sins. And by faith, we must receive the forgiveness of them. Both these must go together. We must not think either that reforming our lives will save us 
without trusting in the righteousness and grace of Christ. Or that trusting in Christ will save us without the reformation of our heart and lives. They go together, friends. This is the message that Jesus proclaims. Repent and believe. I remember a time, it was probably about last year, and I made a trip to the mall. Uh, and it was, it was in Louisville, Mall St. Matthews. And it was a typical male trip to the mall, right? I know what I want, so I get out of my car, I, I know what store it's in, and I, I'm determined to just pick it out, no looking around, pay for it, then leave. No funny business. <laughs> but on my determination, I'm veered off my path. And I'm walking down the corridor. There's not many people there. And there's the kiosk, one of the kiosk guys. Uh, and I'm walking down into the mall, and I make eye contact. And why I break it, I'm okay, I'm back. And then I, I mistakenly, I make eye contact again. And then he calls out my name, and I'm done. Okay, I'm too non-confrontational not to stop and pay attention to this guy. So it just kind of snowballs from there. I spend maybe 20 minutes hearing a spiel about the soap I need to buy. Uh, and this isn't just any soap, right? This is soap made from minerals from the Dead Sea. Now, I've been to the Dead Sea, right? And so I talked to him about that. And uh, it just ends up in me spending like 30 bucks on soap. <laughs> And it's something that I will never use. And it's something I can't really give away because the packaging is just really weird. <laughs> Maybe you're here today and Jesus' message of repent and believe is like that soap kiosk guy. It's well-meaning, but you're too determined and don't really want to hear it. And in fact, if you stop and listen closely, that message of repent and believe is actually pretty offensive. The actual words of Jesus here go against the common notion of Jesus that's portrayed in our culture. It's the notion that in his love, he always affirms whatever lifestyle that will make you happy. Friends, Jesus is loving, and he is gracious, and he is merciful, and he is compassionate, far beyond that we know. But the Jesus that always affirms your lifestyle, the Jesus that always affirms your choices, isn't Jesus. That's a projection of yourself. So let Jesus' call to repent and believe be a reminder, even to us who have done that already for the first time, that our life, we don't cease to do that. That our lives now, as those who follow Jesus, are those who continue to repent of their sin and to believe more and more in Christ. But just as Jesus preached this to many in the region of Galilee, so even here, the, the Gospel of Mark would have been read out loud to its original audience. And among both of those groups, would have been people who don't know Jesus, who have never repented and believed. 
Friend, if that's you this morning, we are so glad you are here. And perhaps you've been coming for a while, or perhaps you've thought you've been a Christian, but you're realizing that you've never made Jesus your own. In this verse, verse 15, Jesus says loud and clear what you must do. He says to forsake a life of living for yourself and turn to him in faith. Trusting in him alone for a hope of righteous standing before God. Loving him, treasuring him. And what this response looks like is made even clearer in the next section. Jesus preaches to individuals. Jesus preaches to individuals. Beginning in verse 16, Mark moves from the general to the specific. He moves from a summary of Jesus' preaching ministry to a case study in it. He moves from the crowds of Galilee as a whole to individual, individuals on its shores. So in this section, we see Jesus called two different sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew and James and John. So in digesting verses 16 to 20 as a whole, let's view what Jesus does and then what the disciples do. First, what Jesus does. Jesus sees something. You read in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw. Read again in verse 19. And going on a little further, he saw. What? Or rather, who does Jesus see? He sees fishermen. Now, the fishing industry in Galilee was huge. This 13-mile by 7-mile lake was full of fish, and it was full of fishermen. And Jesus sees these fishermen in the middle of their work. He sees Simon and Andrew casting a net. And this could have been done while wading in water. It's a net that would have been roughly 20 feet in diameter and had weights attached around its perimeter. And so what it would have done, you would have found a way to cast it into the water and the weights bring the net down, kind of like a parachute. And then the fisherman swims underneath the water and ties the net together, trapping the fish inside. James and John, on the other hand, are in a boat. They're mending the nets either fixing it or getting it ready to cast. And since they're in the boat, they're probably using a larger dragnet. Jesus sees something. He sees fishermen. And notice again the theme of using the unimpressive. Now make no bones about it. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they would have been capable men. These aren't nobodies here. To stay afloat in the big fishing industry of Galilee, you have to be able to catch a lot of fish and you have to be able to sell your fish, which might even mean knowing how to speak Greek to trade it internationally. But let's say if Jesus wanted to start his ministry today. Let's say if Jesus wanted to build this big movement or a big company or top-notch school where do you think he would search for people? If he was smart, he'd probably get people with high SAT scores. He'd probably search in networks of young professionals. Maybe he'd go to Ivy League schools or Silicon Valley or Wall Street. But we notice here, 
Jesus doesn't start off by recruiting movers and shakers. He doesn't try to appeal to up-and-coming Roman guards, nor does he go to the best rabbi schools. He goes to the bustling shores of Galilee, where regular fishermen would just blend in. So what say you? Are you ever tempted to think that you have to be impressive for in order to God, for, for God to notice you? See Jesus' grace here. That he enters into the world of Simon and Andrew and James and John. And he searches for them. And he calls them. He doesn't give them a test to see if they're worthy. He simply says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. This would have been unlike anything they had ever experienced. Because rabbis like Jesus, they didn't approach potential students. No, potential students approached rabbis. Further, rabbis like Jesus didn't call their potential students to follow them. They called them to follow the Torah. The law. So what we have here is a new authority. What we have here is the authority of the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus says, follow me. He's calling them to a new purpose. He's calling them to serve his interests and not their own. He calls them to be a part of his mission to rescue men and women who wander endlessly like fish in the sea. So notice next what the disciples do. Jesus calls, he sees them, he searches for them. Now what's the disciples' response? Now if we read in the other, in the other gospels, some of his disciples already knew him because they were disciples of John the Baptist, like Simon and Andrew. But notice, they went back to their jobs after they had already met him. Instead of searching out for Jesus, Jesus searches out for them. And now it's the tipping point. What would these brothers do? They both left and they followed Jesus. And see how their responses, different emphases are, are placed on each one. So for Simon and Andrew, notice verse 18. It says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And immediately. They understood the urgency of this call. They left with haste. They didn't gather up their net and haul in their load. They got up and they followed. And this is what happens when you realize who Jesus is and you hear his call. It's that moment that Charles Wesley describes in his hymn, And Can It Be? He says, My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. They did it immediately. But like Simon and Andrew left their nets, in verse 20, James and John show the cost of discipleship. They show the cost of following. Because who do they leave? They leave behind their father and their hired servants. 
All these disciples leave behind their livelihood. And even for James and John, if they had hired servants, it would have at least been middle class. They leave behind their family, their father. And to be clear, Jesus doesn't call everyone to do this. Jesus doesn't call all of us to leave our jobs and leave our families. As would-be leaders of the church, these things would have prohibited James and John and Simon and Andrew from following Jesus wholeheartedly. But so it is with us, though we may not be called to leave our jobs and family. Coming to Jesus and following to Jesus means that he must be the most important thing. Jesus would later say that if we are to follow him, we must deny ourselves. William Grimshaw was born in England at the beginning of the 18th century. And when it was time to go to college, Grimshaw went to Cambridge. If you're familiar, Cambridge is a pretty good school. But at this time, Cambridge didn't have that high of academic standards. It was a low point in the school's history. So while at Cambridge, Grimshaw became a deist. That means he believed that there is a God, but that he's not really involved in the world. While at Cambridge also, Grimshaw sunk into a lifestyle of drinking and just overall debauchery. He was much like many of the students around him. Now Grimshaw, while he was at Cambridge, he was studying to become an Anglican minister, which is surprising, right? This guy who's a drunk and doesn't believe the right things about God wants to become a minister? Well, it was common in that day and age. Most Anglican ministers believed what Grimshaw believed and lived how Grimshaw lived because it was a perfect job for him. He knew that all he would have to do is show up on Sunday morning and read the liturgy that's already prepared for him. And the rest of the week, he can do whatever he wants. Drink his sorrows away at the pub. One day, though, a couple from Grimshaw's church approached him for counsel. They just lost their baby. But Grimshaw had no words for them. He had no comfort. Didn't know what to say. And that's what woke him up. At that time, he resolved to reform his life, to attempt to outweigh his bad deeds with his good deeds, and even kept a, a tally marker. He did this for several years to his futility. Until another faithful day when he would read the work of John Owen, a Puritan theologian, his book, the, the Doctrine of the Justification by Faith. It's then that he saw Jesus clearly for the first time. It's then that he no longer relied on himself, but on Christ for a righteous standing before God. Then, after that, the Bible became a new book to him. His prayers became real. His preaching was fervent and included themes of Christ and sin and repentance and heaven and hell. And Jesus made this Grimshaw, a former drunk, a fisher of men and women. That through him, he would save thousands of people as revival broke out in this poor town of Haworth, England. 
So whether it's fishermen or whether it's Grimshaw in England, when you finally see Jesus, when Jesus searches out and you see him and you hear his call, you get up and follow. And you will do it quickly and you will let nothing get in the way between you and Christ. So I ask, what's, what's getting in the way of us continuing to follow? What are ways we are not denying ourselves? Know that if we have left and followed and repented of our sins and believed, God has not left us without help. God has given us his spirit. More than that, God has given us one another. So that even as we approach the Lord's Supper this morning, it's a special time to examine our walk with the Lord. It's a special time to again live a life of repentance and faith, to ask God for help to turn from sin and turn in faith to following him. So we looked at the disciples and we saw their faith. We saw their courage. But look closer at Jesus and see his grace. Let's pray. Lord, as the hymn goes, just a closer walk with thee. That's what we desire this morning. We see your mission in your ministry that good news has come, but there must be a response. That we must repent and believe in the gospel. Lord, we pray you would bring fruit to that end. And God, we pray that we would live lives of continual repentance and faith in you. Lord, we see your grace. We see your grace that we have not earned your favor, but you have sought us out. Lord, thank you. Cleanse our hearts, we pray, as we approach the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.